for the last 2,000 years, the world has been trying to figure out what to make of Jesus, and the world has been a bit divided about him. Is he a wise teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he someone that has been misunderstood and the disciples have made him out to be something that he is not? Is he a crazy man? Or is he the Son of God, the Savior of the world? How about we just go ask him? That's what we're going to do today. We're in our series called Words from the Mountain, and we have moved from what are called the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes have been called by Christian scholars to be the most profound words that have ever been spoken. And we're moving out of this part of our series called Words of the Mountain and into a new part that we're going to call the law. And here's what's going on. So God has rescued his people, and after rescuing them, he's saying, now here is how you now should live in light of being rescued. So here's how you think of it. God loves you enough to do everything it takes to win you back to him, to bring about a relationship between you and him, and to buy your forgiveness. He does everything it takes, and he refuses. He loves you enough to refuse to let you stay the same. And that's what this next part that we're entering into is. He's saying, this now is how you should then live in light of what has been accomplished for you. And today, we're, we're moving into an introductionary part of this new section. And before Jesus tells us how we should then live, he tells us something even more important. He tells us who he is. And he keeps saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And he's saying it over and over and over again. And we got to ask, is this guy a megalomaniac? Meaning, is, does he have this mental disorder where he has these illusions of grandeur? I mean, maybe, unless what he says about himself is true. And what I've found is that most people aren't really listening to what he's saying about himself. So when you talk to people, people will say, everybody, everybody seems to agree that Jesus is the wisest teacher. He's potentially the wisest teacher that has ever been who's taught us about love and about forgiveness and about humility and about truth. He's known for this. And the world would agree about that statement that I made about him. I mean, it's his priority. That's his thing. But they say, I'm not quite sure if he's the son of God. Now, let me ask you this. If you, you found some wise teacher and you, you said, I'm going to sit under this person's tutelage. And so you begin to sit under their tutelage and you're learning all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, this teacher's like, oh, by the way, I'm the son of God and the savior of the world. You would say, all right, I'm out. Because clearly, I can't listen to anything this person says because they're crazy. They think that they're the Son of God, come into the world to die for everybody else. He simply couldn't be a wise teacher then. Now, this is potentially what you're thinking, or maybe you've thought this before, or maybe this kind of causes a little bit of doubt for you, um, but you might be thinking, well, 
maybe he's a bit misunderstood. I mean, maybe when he says he's the son of God, the savior of the world, maybe what he's saying is he's reached the pinnacle of what it means to be a human. He's reached the status that if you live in such a way like this, then you could be called the son of God. He's reached the ultimate display of what it means to be a human. And, and you could say that, and you could make that argument until we arrive at what he argues for today. Because what he says today is that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. That all of it is pointing to him. And so what you realize is when you see what he says here today, you have to come to the conclusion that this man is claiming to be something different than us. If you're really listening to him, he can't be just a wise teacher. He's clearly claimed to be something greater. And so if you ask Jesus who he says he is, here's what he would say. I am the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament and all of it is pointing to me. So let me read it to you. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just show you the magnitude of this claim that he has just made. When Jesus says he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. So when he says law, this is talking about the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. And then when he says the prophets, basically that's everything else. So what he's claiming right here is that all of what the people who are who of the day who would say this is the word of God, he's saying all of it's pointing to him. All of it. It's like a flashing sign, like the Old Testament is searching for this great hope. Where is the hope of the world? Where's the one, the long-awaited one we're waiting for? And then he comes on the scene and he says, I'm here. It's all pointing to me. Now, he's saying, look at me. Now, the only way to call this man a great teacher is either if he never said this or this is actually true about him. But because he has claimed this, you can no longer call him just a wise teacher. He has to be something more or he has to be just a crazy person. Now, you could argue that throughout history, some great leaders have have spoken in a bit of hyperbole about, them, about themselves, making themselves out to be probably something greater than they are. But here's the problem. You can't do that with Jesus because his, his greatest priority is what? The truth. So he's not going to speak something that isn't true. So you can't say that about him. He's either crazy or he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. How else would this movement have gotten off the ground, by the way? It couldn't. You know, we think of people who are crazy today, like people who are leaders of cults, and guess what we say about them? They're crazy. These are crazy people. Nobody says that about Jesus. 
Nobody says he's crazy. Everybody says he's a wise teacher about love and forgiveness and humility and truth. But look what he's claiming. He should be dismissed as either a crazy person or as the son of God. And if you don't think that he's claiming this, you're not listening to him. Now, you got to think. Okay, so for Jesus, the greatest proof that he is the actual rescuer of the world is the scriptures, is the Old Testament. In fact, if we go to John, John chapter 5, he says this. So people are trying to figure out what to make of him. And they're, they're, they're all talking about it. And he says, you know what? Don't even listen anymore to what I say about me because you're obviously not hearing what I'm saying. And don't even listen. He says, but listen to what other people are saying about me. But you know what? There's something greater. He said, look at my miracles. And then he says, but there's something even greater than my miracles. Meaning there's something even greater that he, than him rising from the grave. He says it's the scriptures, the Old Testament, saying it's all pointing to him. Let me read it to you. John 5, verse 39. For you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he's saying, look, you're looking in the scriptures for, for life. And he's saying, all the scriptures are pointing to me. So if you want life, come to me. I mean, this is astounding. The, the people there would have, their minds would have been blown about what he's saying. I mean, that's why they're trying to kill him. Then verse 46, he says, For if you believe Moses, he's the writer of the first five books of the Bible, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I mean, this is crazy. So he's saying that Moses, who was long dead, way before Jesus comes on the scene, he's saying that Moses is writing of him. Luke 24, 27. Listen to this. So Jesus has just risen from the dead. His disciples are walking with him, but his disciples aren't really sure that it's him yet. And then here's what he says to them. Beginning, or it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Again, all pointing to him. And then here's the last one. 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, all of the promises of God, all the promises of God, find their yes in him. It's clear. It's crystal clear what's being said. Now, I wrestle with doubt like everybody else. And one of the best things that I have, that I can ever do for my doubt, what, 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 when, I, when, I'm, when I'm looking at what I believe to be true and I'm wrestling with doubt, what gives me rest about what I believe is when I go and I look at the Old Testament and I see how it's all pointing to him. And I say, there's no way that someone could have made this up. It's too perfect. It's too beautiful. So I'm, I'll never forget. So was, I was in a seminary class, and we were looking at how specifically this chapter in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, how it was all pointing forward to Christ. And we're looking at the details and all the ways Christ is fulfilling this chapter. And I remember just sitting there. I, I, was, I worked so hard to contain myself because I just wanted to get up and I just wanted to start singing and dancing. I know that sounds weird, but just something was happening inside of me and it, it was worship. I, there was worship going on inside of me because of the truth of Christianity became so clear to me as I'm looking at all that is said in the Old Testament and how it's pointing forward to him. And 
I don't know if you know this, there's a bit of controversy today about the Old Testament. So there's a, a, a famous preacher of today, and, and he made this claim that we should unhinge the Old Testament from the New Testament. And uh, there's a few people who are upset about it. Some people like what he's saying, but, but the, the pastors that run in, in my circles are a little bit upset about it, you know, like pastor gangs. <laughs> Just joking, we don't have those. So anyways, there's people who are upset. Now, he's a little bit misunderstood, this guy, because here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying that, look, there's too many people today that don't understand the Old Testament. There's things in there that are just really hard to read and make you cringe. So what we should do is we should start with Jesus and just focus on him. And that's what he's saying. And it's kind of a method of like helping someone understand who Jesus is. However, here's a bit of the problem. Jesus is saying that the greatest proof that he is who he says he is, is the Old Testament. So it's not that we should unhinge it, the old and the new, but we should hinge them even more together. In, in my opinion, they should be read as one giant book or one giant story. I mean, I probably won't get what I want, but that's what I think probably should be happening. What I would argue is that you can't fully understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And you can't fully understand, actually, the Old Testament without the New. Especially some of the stuff that you read in there. You see these battles and the violence. You can't understand that unless you're looking at it in light of the New Testament because Jesus comes on the scene and he's speaking of love and loving your enemies. And you look back at the Old Testament, you say, that doesn't make sense. You got to keep digging. You got to keep understanding who he is and how he's the resolution. And he fixes all of the issues that go on in our heart in the Old Testament. And when they're read together, and you start seeing what's going on, you're going to say, man, this is the most beautiful piece of literature I've ever read. It's going to be too perfect for it to be made by man. You're going to realize that. And, and what you're also going to see is that more than any other work of literature, it's always pointing back to what was said earlier, and then it's showing how what was said earlier is always pointing forward to what is to come. You know, the, you know, I love the Marvel movies, and there's all of these stories that are going on, and then all of a sudden they, they lead up to this this last movie that was produced, it's like everything is pointing to this. And all of these stories are culminating in this grand ending. And when you look at that, you say, man, this is amazing. But when you look at the Bible and you see how everything is coming together, you, you, you look at these Marvel movies and you say, this looks like a toddler wrote it compared to the Bible. And, and the other thing that you see is that somehow you take one book in the Bible and it can stand alone. You could take a verse and it could stand alone and it could change your life forever. But when you start understanding that one book, in light of all of the rest of Scripture, you start seeing things that you didn't see before. It's, I mean, it's tra it transforms you to an exponential degree because it solves so many problems that are going on in your heart with faith and doubt. I mean, that's the thing that you need most is to believe more. And the way to do that is to see how all the Old Testament is pointing forward to him and seeing how he's the fulfillment of it. And when you see it, it makes you just want to worship him and you're transformed. And you walk away thinking, oh, Jesus 
really is the Son of God, and he's really come for me, me like a shepherd, and he's really given his life on the cross for my sins, and he's dealt with it, and he's risen to put death in its grave, and now it's not over. He's at the right hand of God, and he's telling God the Father that I am his, and he is mine, and then one day he's going to return and make all things right. You start believing that because you see how everything is making sense. And then you see how they make sense, and you... And you can't help it but sing. And you start writing songs about him. And then you see, I mean, can you imagine if someone wrote a song about you and 2,000 years later, there's a bunch of people throughout the world and they're all gathering together and they're singing and they're lifting their hands, talking about how much they love this person. If they did that to you, that would be weird. That is so strange. Unless his claims are true. And then it makes perfect sense. Otherwise, if you're a Christian, you are weird. It doesn't make sense what you're doing. But if it's true, it makes perfect sense. So what I want to do now is I want to show you, this is real exciting, I want to show you all the ways, well, not all the ways, I'm sorry, I can't show you all the ways. I could show you, I'm going to show you a little sliver of the ways of how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So all these books up here, this is only a few of, that I have, but th- well, a lot that I have, but this is all about all the ways that the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. This is not all the books I have. This is all the books I have on this subject, okay? Okay. I'm smart, I promise. Now, all right, so everything here is showing all of these little glimmers of truth, all of these hints, all of these almost secrets that have been uncovered in Christ. So let me just go. We're going to start from the beginning. Genesis 1, the first few verses in, it talks about how when God spoke, things came into existence. When he spoke, in John chapter 1, the way Jesus is introduced is as he's called the Word. And by calling him the Word, there's, there's so, I mean, we could do a whole series on the fact that Jesus is called the Word. But one thing that it's highlighting is that Jesus is the Creator. He was there at creation, and he's actually the Creator. All pointing forward to him. I mean, all of these massive secrets are uncovered in him. Let me show you another one. And this one I've just recently discovered. I'm really excited about this one. So, at the beginning... The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. And as the Spirit of God is hovering, the Spirit is creating life. I mean, it's almost like the Spirit of God is like causing these vibrations and these energy to bring life into the world and to bring creation about. Now watch this. Now that imagery is, is it's riffing throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but then it arrives where we see this story about this woman named Mary. And this angel appears to her and says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and hover over you. And as that happens, the Savior of the world is going to be in your belly. As if to say, a new creation is forming. Because guess what? All throughout the Old Testament, they're talking about a new creation that is to come. A new heavens and a new earth. As if to say, now, here's the beginning of that process happening right here in the womb of Mary. I mean, this is crazy. All throughout. I mean, if you, if you saw, if you knew that and you were reading it for the first time, you would think this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. There's no way this is true. But yet, everything makes sense to believe it's true. All right, let's go on. Now, that's only 
the first few verses. Let's do Genesis 2. Now, in Genesis 2, we, we see a new crea- another creation story that God is letting us understand, and water is talked about. Now, all throughout the Bible, water is very, very important. So here, here's what you see. When, when God creates in Genesis 2, we see that in Eden, there's a special underground water stream, and it kind of bubbles up, up to the ground. Now, now watch this. So here's the thing with water. When water is close with God, it represents peace and life. It's still. And when water gets far from God in the Bible, it represents chaos and destruction and death. Now watch this. You are made of that same special water. So there's, it's, it's, a, it's a work off of the, the Hebrew language. So the word for this water under the ground is odd. Not O-D-D, but A-D. Okay? Then the word for humanity is Adam or Adam. And then the word for this ground is Adamah. So here's what it's saying. You are made out of this special underground water along with the dust of the earth brought together into this clay-like substance and God is the potter and you are the clay and he makes you and you are now alive. Now, here's what happens. Humanity, this is the rest of the picture of the Old Testament. Humanity now, as humanity gets further from God, becomes more chaotic, more destructive, and is running into death as humanity is running from God. In fact, humanity becomes a picture of destruction and death because we're made of this water that's running from God. All right, now we see Jesus come on the scene. So he comes on the scene, and what does he call himself? The living waters. Over and over and over again, he's making reference to this water as if to say, I am life, come for you. Now, look, it's not over yet. So he keeps doing this. One of my favorite ways he does this is in Matthew 14. Matthew 14, Jesus goes up on the mountain. So he's going up on the mountain. Now, here's what's happening. He's going up on the mountain on purpose because in Genesis 2, the mountain represents the Garden of Eden. It's the mountain garden of God. So he goes up to the mountain. So he's saying, I'm the king of Eden. And then he tells his disciples, go out into the boat. Like, why is he telling them to do this? You know, a lot of Jesus' miracles are pointing to some type of fulfillment. So he says, go out onto the boat. So they go out into the boat, and then the waters, the wind picks up, and the waters become raging and chaotic. And they're scared out there. So it's a big deal. And they're fishermen, and they're scared. So it's pretty rough. So, so then here's what Jesus does. He comes out. And he walks out on this chaotic sea as if to say, I am the one who has come to rise up above death and destruction and decay. And he walks out upon the water and he says to Peter, come on. As if to say to humanity, trust me, come out. I will raise you up above the waters of death and destruction and decay and sin. And so Peter walks out on the water and then Jesus gets in the boat and all becomes calm. I mean, this is screaming at us pictures back in Eden. And it's all on purpose for us to know that he's the king of Eden come to give us life up out of the destruction and the death that we see all around us. Okay, we're just in Genesis 2, Genesis 3. As soon as sin enters the world, as soon as it enters the world, Adam and Eve go running and hiding from God in shame. They don't want to be around God. The shame that they have experienced has caused them to run away from God. 
It's the best thing for them is to go to God, yet they feel too much shame to do it. So what does God do? He clothes them with animal skin. Now, where did this animal skin come from? Well, it came from an animal. And, but, but now the animal is dead. Up until this point in creation, nothing has died in this story. In order for Adam and Eve's shame to be covered up, something had to die, pointing us forward to the one who will ultimately die for our sin and shame on the cross in order to cover us with his righteousness. This is a theme you see over and over and over again in Christianity, where the righteousness of Christ is covering us, meaning his perfection, his perfect record is clothed over us because of our faith. And now what do we do? We walk into the presence of the Father, feeling no shame at all because we're covered with the perfection of his perfect Son. So we don't have to feel shame. We can just come into the presence of God confident that he's going to love us and accept us. It's a beautiful thing. Here's another thing from Genesis 3. Don't worry, we're going to pick up pace. So Genesis 3, there's a place where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is first preached. It's first told. Do you know who does it? God. God speaks it. Do you know who he speaks it to? Satan. Here's what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman's offspring, and he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. In other words, from the line of Eve will come a man, a human, who will crush the head of Satan. Now, here's what we know for sure. There is no human being who, could, who has the power to go up against Satan, but God does. So God becomes man in order to crush evil, death, sin. So there's a place in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, where, where Jesus is praying in the garden. And as he's praying, there's, a, there's a, a snake slithers up, and Jesus crushes its head. Now, that's not in the Bible. Mel Gibson just decided to put that in there, but it was a good move, because here's why. On the cross, Jesus does that very thing, where he crushes, stomps down on sin, k, death, evil. It's dealt with on the cross and the resurrection. All right. Laying evil and death and sin in its own grave. Now, let me go a bit faster. Let's look at the people of the Old Testament. Adam. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose perfect obedience is now credited to us. Because you know that Adam's sin was credited to us, and now Christ's obedience is credited to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel. You know, Abel was killed by his brother Cain. And after he is killed, it says that the blood of Abel cried out for Cain's condemnation in the ground, from the ground. But now Jesus' blood cries out not for our sins, not for our condemnation, but for our forgiveness. That story of Abel is pointing to him. He's the true and better Abraham who left his homeland to go build a new place and a new people. I mean, this requires some Old Testament knowledge, so go read the Old Testament if you don't know what I'm saying. Uh, Joseph. Joseph becomes this king. He's sitting at the right hand of the king, and Joseph comes to the aid to save his brothers who sold him into slavery, just exactly what Jesus does with us. 
He's the true and better Moses. So the story of Moses goes like this. God's people sin. God's like, ugh. And then Moses is like, God, forgive them. So Moses becomes like this intermediary that's arguing for the forgiveness of God's people. That's exactly what Jesus does. He's the mediator that argues for our forgiveness. All right, let's look at some objects in the Old Testament. There's a rock. So the Israelites come out of slavery, and there's this rock that's on the ground, and they're thirsty, and there's no water because they're out in the desert, and they're like shaking their fist at God, and God says, okay, Moses, take this rod that you have and strike the rock, and when you do, water's going to come out of it. He takes the rod, meaning like a rod of justice. What happens on the cross? Jesus is struck with the rod of justice in our place so that living waters will come out of him and give us life. The Passover lamb, you guys know the story of the Passover lamb. If you don't, go read the Old Testament. In the the story, there's an innocent, helpless, slain lamb that dies so that the angel of death will pass over God's people. Same thing, Jesus is that. All right, one more thing. In the Old Testament, there's three major offices or roles. The role of a prophet, priest, and king. The prophet is meant to bring God's word to God's people. And God would reveal himself in extraordinary ways to this prophet so that the prophet would be able to bring God's word to God's people. Jesus is the true and greater prophet. He is the very word of God. Come. Also, the priest. There was a high priest once a year goes into the presence of God in the temple. And he's acting as an intermediary between God and God's people. Now, Do you know what Jesus is doing right now for you? Do you know what he's doing right now for you? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's whispering over to the Father, Hey, I am his. I am hers. She is mine. She is mine. They're in the family. We love them. I died for them. I rose for them. I fought for them. My victory was for them. They are with us. Testifying to the Father that you are his. You're in the family. Uh, the king, man, I got to get going. He is the ultimate king who comes back one day to rule with grace and wisdom, perfection. Why aren't there sacrifices anymore? You know, in the Old Testament, there's all these crazy sacrifices, and they sound crazy to you because you are in a different culture, and you are in that culture because Christ has come and come as the ultimate sacrifice who has dealt with our sins. All right. Here's the question. How will you respond to this? Because if you're like everybody else for the last 2,000 years, we've been trying to figure out what to make of him. And we're circling around him and we're analyzing him, trying to figure out who he is and how should we respond. Is he really the king of the world? You know, and part of you wants to believe it's true and part of you does believe it's true, but part of you, you're not going all in. Because why? Because you know if you do, and all this is true about him, you lose control. It means that, you know, you wear a crown. In your mind you do. And you have your kingdom. And you want to live your life the way you want to live it. I get it. And he's sitting there saying, I have a better way. And that scares you. So you stay back. I could argue intellectually 
why you should go to him. And you would say that makes sense. But in your heart, you want to avoid him because you lose control. He's the fulfillment of everything that is said in the Old Testament. What is holding you back from him? There's a, there's a story in the book of Revelation where these 24 elders come and they take their crowns and they throw them at the foot of Christ on his throne and they, and they, they begin to worship him. Here's what they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. See, there's a thing about us where we don't want to look foolish. And worshiping God looks a bit foolish. But when all of this begins to ring true in your heart, and it is like a gong just banging in your heart, you can't help it. And you stop caring about what you look like. And you just realize, man, there's nothing else left for me to do than to sit in this classroom and stand up and start singing. Perhaps it was foolish that I didn't start singing and dancing when I felt all of that inside of me. I mean, I bet it was foolish of me. It was the most logical response for me to do, yet I didn't do it because I was worried. But in my heart, I was doing it. And that's the question. What's going on in your heart? Run to him. He's the flashing sign saying, here is your hope. Here's the one you've been looking for. He's here. Stop asking what to make of him. He's already told you who he is. God, I pray now that we would go running to your son. That we would see him as the living water that we would see him as the great hope, that we would see you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and our Rescuer and our King and our Lord and all the parts in us that want to run from you, God, I pray that you would deal with them like you've dealt with death on the cross and you would crush them under your foot so our doubts would be crushed and we would come running to you. God, help us do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there is one more promise. In communion, we get to see this beautiful promise fulfilled in Him. So when Jesus is with His disciples, right before He's about to be arrested after he's been sold by his friend to death, he's with... No, happens after. I, I don't know. Don't worry about that. Confused right now. But here's what I know for sure. He gives us the promise of the bread and the cup. And here's what he does. He's with his friends right before he goes to be arrested. And he takes the bread... And he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. He's the bread of life that's come down from heaven. To give you life, he's the greatest want that you have in your heart. And then, he takes the cup. Now this cup represents promises that were made by God 
to humanity in the Old Testament. And he pours it out. He says, this is the cup, my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins, as if to say all the promises, all the promises of the Old Testament are true in him, and he's drank them down. So when you run to him, those promises become yours. Father, I pray that all that was just said, that you would send your spirit here to reveal to us the truth and the beauty of these claims. That we couldn't sit back with eyes watching as the greatest display of love ever given on the earth is shown, but that we would run up to the one who has shown that love and we would make ourselves yours now and forever and ever. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.